to another episode of the Science of D&D podcast, a podcast where we investigate the fantastical world of Dungeons & Dragons using real science. My name is Justin Frazee. And I am Dr. Betsy Shaw. Today we're going to be talking about druids and transmutation magic, because one of druids' key features is wild shape, which seems to be pretty close to transmutation. Yeah, so... We realized uh, from the past couple podcasts that we uh, don't really know a lot about druids. It's mm-hmm. not a class that either of us have played. I think probably our knowledge extended to what most people know is that druids are about changing into animals and also nature, just like pretty pretty broadly, pretty nature generally. stuff. Yeah, nature stuff. The changing into animals thing is like pretty cool in itself, and there's might be some interesting things to speculate about that but um that this would be a learning opportunity for both of us to learn a little bit more about this class yeah so let's kick off by uh reading an excerpt from the player's handbook about druids druids revere nature above all gaining their spells and other magical powers from the force of nature itself or from a nature deity many druids pursue a mystic spirituality of transcendent union with nature rather than devotion to a divine entity, while others serve gods of wild nature, animals, or elemental forces. The ancient Druidic traditions are sometimes called the Old Faith, in contrast to the worship of gods in temple and shrines. Druid spells are oriented towards nature and animals, the power of tooth and claws, of sun and moon, of fire and storm. Druids also gain the ability to take on animal forms, and some Druids may make a particular study of this practice, even to the point where they prefer animal form to their natural forms. Another interesting excerpt while we are reading this is uh, under the Preserve the Balance uh, title. It says, For druids, nature exists in a precarious balance. The four elements that make up the world, air, earth, fire, and water, must remain in equilibrium. If one element were to gain power over the other, the world could be destroyed, drawn into one of the elemental planes, and broken apart into its component elements. Thus, druids oppose cults of elemental evil and others who promote one element in the exclusion of others. I really liked finding that one because I think that really plays well into my theories and related to the origins of. Or not the but, origins of magic, the, the mechanisms of magic. Yeah, just elements in the elemental planes. It's also very evocative to think about the world being pulled into an elemental plane, being uh, torn into its pieces. Yeah, so one thing that was kind of surprising when we were discussing druids last time is that it seems like they're actually kind of close to something like a cleric, which something I did, yeah. didn't know. Getting their power from... The divine. Yes, a a god or a power of nature. Yeah, some sort of higher power. Yeah, which is, we think, why, like, they are able to cast ninth level true resurrection. Right. Those sorts of healing spells as well. So let's just dive right in and I think go ahead and talk about wild shape, since that's kind of one of the highlights of playing a druid is this ability to turn into... Animals. So there, there are some restrictions to what animals you can change into. 
And basically at the beginning, when you get wild shape at second level, you're restricted to animals that have a challenge rating of one fourth Mm -hmm. um, and are not allowed to fly or have a swimming speed. As you get higher, your challenge rating goes up to one half. And then at eighth level, you're allowed to go up to a challenge rating of one. So we're not getting to anything like super crazy or super powerful, but there are a lot of things that have a CR of one that do have a lot of HP, high armor class. And so you can become pretty powerful as one of these animals. Yeah. So the first thing to ask is what is wild shape, right? And it it doesn't say directly. It's not like a spell that says what school of magic this is from. So maybe the first question could be, is this illusory? Are you just seen as the form of an animal? Wild Chief does have rules regarding your equipment and how your equipment is handled in the context of this transformation. And they do, they do actually use the word transformation um, in the description later. And so it seems like because you have to deal with like these physical things on your body that, that it's probably a little bit more than illusory magic. Yeah. I think um, kind of the most simple way to disprove that is with disguise self, you could theoretically disguise yourself as an Aarakocra or, or something with wings or Aarakocra fly. Yes. Okay. But you couldn't fly as opposed to wild shape, which, you know, at higher levels you can fly. So it's something that's more than illusory. It's physical change, which is why we figured it would go into transmutation. Yeah, so let's take a brief segue to transmutation magic, and then we will kind of return back to wild shape and changing into animals. Yeah, so the best uh, clues about transmutation come from the wizard class. So I'll just read something out of the transmutation school in the wizards. You are a student of spells that modify energy and matter. To you, the world is not a fixed thing, but eminently mutable, and you delight in being an agent of change. You wield the raw stuff of creation and learn to alter both physical forms and mental qualities. Your magic gives you the tools to become a smith on reality's forge. I love how they use the phrase, you wield the raw stuff. (laughs) Like, it's not specific, it's just stuff. Yeah, the rest of the language is very flowery, and then it's just stuff. So another paragraph in the Wizard School of Transmutation reads this. Some transmuters are tinkers and pranksters, turning people into toads and transforming copper into silver for fun and occasional profit. Others pursue their magical studies with deadly seriousness, seeking the power of the gods to make and destroy worlds. So that's quite interesting because that's the closest you really see the wizard school or wizard schools get to divine type of magic. And it makes sense because making and destroying matter is... It breaks laws, or at least it would break our our laws. Yeah. So I guess that's the question is... And we've talked about this a little bit before. In in the world of D&D, can you create and destroy matter? And I think in the past, um, I've said no, that like you could probably do conversions of energy and matter. 
And that's where I would probably land still of you're not creating something out of nothing. You're essentially like harnessing the elements around you that are invisible and you can't see because they're too small and putting them into something tangible. Right. So perhaps it's just easier to do a conversion from energy into matter. Something like that would be quite difficult in our world, but it seems that it would be far easier in this one. So let's let's look at some example spells, since there, it doesn't go into a lot of detail about wild shape, or at least mechanically how it works. Let's do some investigation, check out some similar spells to see what we can discover. Yeah. So I, I think with transmutation spells in general, there, there's a couple different flavors. So one, you're going to get like cantrips like mending, and these are going to apply to very physical things, like non-living, essentially. Mending repairs things. Um, specifically, this spell repairs a single break or tear in an object you touch, such as a broken chain link, two halves of a broken key, a torn cloak, a leather wineskin. As long as the break or tear is no longer than one foot in any dimension, you can mend it, leaving no trace of the formal damage. So that doesn't seem, you know, that's just a cantrip, and, you know, it's obvious, like, that doesn't seem too far the realm of possibility when it comes to magic of just putting something back in its state. But it does get quite more complicated. Yeah, so then we get to, I think, the spells that are a little bit more akin to the type of magic we're seeing with druids and wild shape, and these are your spells like uh, polymorph, Animal shapes, shape change, all of these are, one, they're druid spells. Some of those also are wizard spells. And then they are changing living things, people, humanoids, essentially. So I don't know if there's one of those you want to, like, land on more than the others just to, like, kind of read through as an example. Maybe we'll just go with animal shapes because that's kind of similar to yeah i was gonna say that or polymorph would probably be the things i'd be most interested in okay so i'll just pull up animal shapes real fast um this is an eighth level transmutation spell so pretty high it says you your magic turns others into beasts choose any number of willing creatures that you can see within range you transform each target into the form of a large or smaller beast with a challenge rating of four or lower on your subsequent turns, you can use your action to transform affected creatures into new forms. And, and there's more there, but I think that's kind of the essence of it. And it says the target's geared melds into the new form. The target can't activate wield or otherwise benefit from any of its equipment. Which is, it's sim that's a slight difference from uh, Wild Shape, because you can choose to drop your equipment or it can uh, come on you and possibly function if you have armor and like are wearing that as an animal it says you, you might be able to have that like ac buff if your dm approves of it more or less yeah so we didn't read everything about wild shape uh the paragraph you're referencing says about wild shape you choose whether your equipment falls to the ground in your space merges into your new form or is worn by it Worn equipment functions as normal, but the DM decides whether it's practical for the new form to wear a piece of equipment, based on the current creature's shape and size. Your equipment doesn't change size or shape to match the new form, and any equipment that the new form can't wear must either fall to the ground or merge with it. Equipment that merges with the form has no effect until you leave the form. See, that seems almost identical. I mean, there's some differences, but... Yeah, I guess with animal shapes, it's, it's a default that it 
merges with your new form work versus you have a, a choice as a druid. Yeah, so I was thinking kind of about these spells um, in the, the context of being a biologist. Wild shape is dramatic cellular change, or that's kind of what it's like proposing to be, which is why I don't think it's actually like cellular change because the amount of changes that your cells would need to undergo is true dramatic. And um, the time. And the time, yeah. Um, there are some examples in biology of cell shifting identity. So for example, like upon injury, uh, we see that I'm not going to get too much into specifics, but like, for example, some cell types will, uh, de-differentiate into more of a progenitor state, and then we'll re-differentiate into a cell type that is, um, from that common progenitor cell, but not the same. So you can think of like a progenitor A can give rise to cell types one and two, so cell type one becomes progenitor A, and then it can become one or two again. And so this is like a mechanism that our body can use to um, replace cells once they've um, been like damaged. But what would the, the like time scale on that be? It it's it's not particularly fast. Yeah, not super slow, but um, we, that would be a single cell, yeah, as opposed to. Yeah, or like small subpopulations of cells. Right. Um, and you would need like the right um, cues to be able to do that. So maybe we should back up. Biology on the scale of things is complex. Maybe we should back it up to chemistry. One of the examples the book gives for transmutation wizards is changing copper to silver. So let's look at the composition of our world's copper and silver and see what that would mean. Okay, so if we look at the periodic table of elements, uh, what we can see is, is a little bit convenient for this conversion is that we have copper and then directly below that is silver. And so the periodic table was organized by people far smarter than me and uh, was organized very well. And so like your rows and columns, they have a similar property. So the fact that they're in the same column is good because it, it means in general there there's a little bit less we need to change in terms of electron configuration. The main big difference between these is to start with is number of protons. Silver's atomic number is 47. Copper's atomic number is 29. And so the difference between that is the number of protons. So the difference between those two numbers is 23, which if you actually look at their atomic masses and subtract them, you get around 23, which, which makes sense since electrons basically have no mass. So the main thing you would need to do, I say this like it's an easy thing, <laughs> but basically you need to give copper a lot more protons and accompanying neutrons. The main difference is besides the proton numbers of so those 18 Electrons, so we would basically need to add another valence electron ring to copper. So maybe you know more about this than me, but <laughs> I, my basic impression is like when they're trying to make new elements and stuff, they have these big like particle colliders where you, you start with something that's close to what you want, and then you shoot in more of what you're trying to add to it. And this is kind of how they they make some of these like more rare elements that you see like in that bottom block of the table that they're only able to like exist transiently, but they're, they're able to make them by basically adding matter to them. Yeah. I think you're about right. 
so basically what a transmutation wizard would do is pull particles from surrounding matter to fuse it and create your new element or your different element which i feel like would have consequences like maybe i'm wrong but i think you would create radiation or something else because you're stripping particles you're essentially doing fission and fusion right you're you're dividing atoms and then combining them so a potential side effect of transmutation is creating an unstable amount of energy because both fission and fusion create energy and then i'm sure there's other effects you would have you have you'd have to be very careful <laughs> also you'd have to be a particle accelerator or be able to make some sort of thing yeah essentially i guess when we i didn't think we were gonna get this deep talking about transmutation magic but uh this is some crazy stuff. And this is like, it's not like we're just changing, like particle accelerators are like altering like small numbers of atoms. This is like, we're altering entire beings essentially. Yeah. I mean, this it is crazy. This is why I, ha I feel like there has to be something that makes these things easier, which is where my idea of planes comes in with the ether plane where there is an innate connection between consciousness and energy and matter that allows you to do this sort of thing. Cause otherwise it would be very difficult or impossible. You couldn't just think something into, you know, happening. Yeah. So although probably pretty dangerous and not easy, which is just simply changing copper into silver, you would have to go way beyond that with biology. Yeah, and th this is the thing is like our, our cells are, they tolerate change to an extent, but they don't like change. So like we talk just basically like UV damage from the sun, like you are damaging DNA. They, it needs to be able to repair that. If it, if it doesn't repair that, like hopefully your cell is smart enough to like die, but if not, like you, you might get cancer. Yeah, it's just how it goes. Like, it, it wouldn't be enough to just be able to create the, the right amount of carbon and, you know, whatever to, to have your mass of things. You'd have to have it that every piece works together and then nearly instantaneously. Yeah, you could think about you're doing this transmutation spell. Presumably you need to, like, affect all the organs, right? Because if you have a human heart inside of a tiger body, like, you're, that's not enough to get blood going where it needs to go and like you're gonna die basically and so all that needs to be coordinated like in an extremely precise manner which i guess like really makes sense that wild shape especially since you get that at second level like we're thinking about like how this is crazy but like it makes sense that it's divine magic at least like divine inspired or like that's where you're drawing upon because it's such an extreme thing to do yeah, but they're not the only ones that can do it. Like, wizards can do transmutation. There's a whole school for it. Yeah, but, like, the, the spell that I read, the Animal Shapes one, that is 8th level. Sure. Polymorph is 4th level, so, like, that that's the one, like, a little bit lower kind of thing. I don't remember if Polymorph has limitations on the size of the animal. Like, I only used it once, and I transformed someone into a weasel because was being a weasel, so. <laughs> we'll flip to it real fast in the first handbook. 
polymorph. The new form can be any beast whose challenge rating is equal to or less than the target's or the target's level if it doesn't have a challenge rating. So in some respects, that's pretty powerful. <laughs> yeah, I've thought in the past that perhaps... Like a, if you're trying to get someone that's level 6 to polymorph, like a, a CR6 is, is not something to shy away. Like, you know, that, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I've, I've thought that maybe it's not actually changing the person, but merely like swapping them, which I guess we could think about like, okay, so the, the classic transmute or like the classic polymorph is sheep, right? Because I don't, I don't really know where that came from. I know that was in World of Warcraft, but I don't know if it happened before that, but changing someone into a sheep, perhaps instead of actually physically changing them to a sheep, you're merely swapping their body with a sheep somewhere else. And, like, their consciousness is now attached to the, the sheep's body. But I don't, I don't know if that's the case. That's It would certainly be easier, I feel like. At least it's easier for me to wrap my head around. Yeah, I think, like, the language of the spell, it's talking about transformation, assuming its new form. I, I tend to think that falls under the more physical transformation realm, but I, yeah. I could see there's enough leeway there to validate not necessarily validate your theory, but like there's there's some wiggle room. Yeah, I think I think it's 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 easier to think it's a swap, but I don't think that's what the language is really getting at because it's it talks about transform. It's a transmutation. It's it's a changing spell. You know, it's not really a, a swapping spell. It just makes more sense. If it would be. <laughs> yeah, transmutation stuff is pretty crazy. Yeah, it's. I don't, like, it's, it would be so complicated. Like, even thinking about even the smallest thing of, like, I don't know. If you wanted to make your heart, you, you know, you mentioned a heart earlier. Like, if you wanted to make a heart into a larger or different animal heart, how, like, weird and complicated that would be. Yeah, or especially, like, you think, like, you're turning someone into a frog. Well, well frogs have three-chambered hearts. We have four-chambered hearts, like. That's very different. Or like a brain, like how do how do you preserve consciousness into a in a brain that's that's completely different? Yeah, and most and less complex. I guess I don't know what dragon brains are like, but um. you do you get the with polymorph? You get the stats of the new creature, right? Yes. So, I mean, th this plays into like real world stuff where like. You know, metaphysics, which is, is the brain separate from the mind, right? Is, like, consciousness different from your mental activity or your chemistry, right? So, I suppose, in that sense of, if you're just talking brain, that, like, if, you know, there is spirit and whatever in D&D, in &D, that your consciousness can be attached to a brain that is less capable and you have those stats for a period of time, even though your consciousness is attached to it. Yeah. So I think if you actually read polymorph, I think there's support for that. It says the target's game statistics, including mental ability scores are replaced by the statistics of the chosen beast. It retains its alignment and personality. So, I mean, if we maybe make the assumption that your like personality is somehow coupled to your spirit ether, essentially, then like, yeah, yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. The other kind of crazy thing of, about these transmutation spells in Wild Shape is, like, not only are we 
changing into this other form. It's it's we have the ability to re- revert back. Yeah. Like, yeah. And and that almost seems like a passive thing because it's like, well, you're reduced to zero hit points. You revert back to your normal form. Um, like, I, I would think that would almost be like an active thing. Like you would want to like spend an action or something like that to do that, like input magic into it. But it seems like it's more just like a, dis- a dispelling of magic. So like you're holding yourself in this alternate state uh, because somehow like you're harnessing magic to do that. And then when you you know, hit to, get to zero HP or whatever, or willingly dispel the magic, then you just go back to normal. Like, that's not how it would work in biology at all. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think, if this actually occurred, what would an observer see? And first, they would see an enormous amount of... At first, if, say, a druid is going to change into a bear, they're going to see an immense amount of matter be pulled to the person. Whatever that looks like, is it coming out of the ground, in the air, you know, all this. And then afterwards, all this biomass, extra, you know, cells, extra matter, it's just going to fall off this person in, like, what, like a sludge or like a (laughs) something. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I was thinking kind of like the Incredible Hulk, right? Like, the... um... Like, because that's at least something we've kind of, like, seen, this visual of, like, a drastic transformation. And it's, it, that doesn't happen. He doesn't, like, slough off cells. No, but, I mean, it's... There's a problem with way, the way he's depicted because he does gain mass. as he, when, he, when Bruce Banner transforms into the Hulk, he gains mass, which has to come from somewhere, right? So, and, you know, that's, that's my thinking, is if... If he w- if that depiction was a little more accurate, that mass would have to come from somewhere, and it would have to go somewhere afterwards, right? So, if we're looking at druids who are actually changing mass, the mass has to come from somewhere, has to go to somewhere. Like you're either it's either coming from you're converting energy into matter, and then at the end converting matter back into energy. In which case, you would see an excess amount of you know, heat, yeah, radiation, lots of different radiation like of like light or sound, you know, heat or all of that, which would be an incredible amount. Honestly, you probably <laughs> being very dangerous to the druid or other people around them, or it would have to, it would have to just be mass, and that in which case it would be some sort of like sludge or you know weird slime stuff. Yeah, and. There's no reference to weird slime stuff <laughs> in the player's handbook that at least I saw. Maybe they omit it. I mean, like, there's also no, there's also no mention of pooping in the book, but... That's true. I was actually thinking, but I didn't want to say it. That they, <laughs> they just take a big, like, poop or something No, like no, that. I'm saying, like, oh, okay. a, a, you could assume that everybody in D&D oh. poops, but it's, and the book doesn't talk about oh, it. That's true. <laughs> okay. Before we go down uh, a rabbit hole that we don't need to go down... <laughs> um, we, we've mainly been focused on the transmutation spells that are involving humanoids and uh, changing bodily forms, essentially. But, but there's a, a lot of other spells within the school of transmutation. Um, we mentioned mending earlier, but like message, for example, falls under this category, which is honestly a little bit surprising to me. Yeah. Um, other ones like mold earth, like that, that makes a little bit more conceptual sense with this idea of like you're altering matter. I think um, that's just pushing Earth around, so that's honestly pretty simple, yeah, comparatively. <laughs> that's true. 
thaumaturgy that's making large sounds or like shaking stuff essentially. So, so, I mean, these are, these are just the cantrips kind of thing. Um, so, so some of these I might say like loosely fit into, I guess maybe not as loosely as I think like press a digitation, like, yeah, you're, you're altering matter to be able to make these, these small effects and, and they're not illusory. They're real. So a lot of these are just adjusting uh, existing things. Even something like Thorn Whip requires a material component is a vine, which is like, so you're just kind of adjusting its length, essentially. Um, other things are just making something more damaging or, you know, more sturdy or heavier or moving something. So it's, those are far less complicated. What about things like Featherfall? Which is a transmutation spell, which I did not know that's what it was. That's a good question. I think in the same vein, looking, uh, there's also Expeditious Retreat, uh, which lets you dash as a bonus action. Basically lets you run at double speed. I'll come back to Featherfall. <laughs> it's more complicated, I think. So something like Expeditious Retreat, I guess, would probably a, be in the vein of a more minor form change you are making someone's legs more efficient more capable giving them additional muscle or would it be like the opposite scenario where like you're changing the surrounding to make it easier to run through just like it's easier to run through air than it's easier to run through water i suppose that could be the case although that would make things difficult if you're also trying to breathe if you're lowering the density of the air i mean maybe it's just like from your waist or something like that, waist down in a bubble. I mean, I don't, I don't know the mechanics, but I don't think that air drag is the has such a high impact on running. I don't think if you could run in a vacuum, I don't think you would run at twice the speed. So I would assume it is more on the side of adjusting someone's muscles, which would be. Weird feeling. Probably not as weird as getting polymorphed, but I think things in that vein, looking at this list, um, like jump, long strider, like that seems to kind of fall in line with that. It's you're increasing your physical ability. You know, not by much. Feather fall, on the other hand, seems complicated. So maybe you're just decreasing the mass of somebody, which would not make them fall slower in a vacuum, but within the same air resistance, they could fall slower. It's either that or changing the way that gravity is affecting them, which is a far more, I don't know. I don't, I don't know which one of those would be more complicated. Well, changing the, the mass of someone is more in line with what we're seeing with transmutation spells in general. Yeah. If, if you're proposing, like, for example... Long strider or, you know, jump, you can, you can jump higher or further is probably changing maybe your muscle composition then. Yeah, but this, the, the problem is, is you're retaining all the same volume with feather fall. So imagine your body suddenly becoming half as dense. You're going you're gonna to see some problems there. What if like feather fall just like stretches you and increases your surface area? So you're more like a parachute. Well, let's actually look at what it says. Okay. Choose up to five falling creatures within range, which is 60 feet. A falling creature's rate of descent slows to 60 feet per round until the spell ends. 
If the creature lands before the spell ends, it takes no falling damage and can land on its feet, and the spell ends for that creature. So it doesn't really say much. Yeah, it just says they fall slower. So I guess another idea could be that you are granting some sort of opposite force to them. You know, some, you are pushing them up. That is slowing their acceleration down, which I want to lean toward because that feels the most simple. You know, if you could apply some sort of thrust to slow them down, that that <laughs> means a lot less than changing their mass. But it is a transmutation spell. I don't know. I suppose that could still fall in the realm of transmutation, which is uh, changing mass and energy. Or perhaps, you know, your idea with the air density with running, I don't know if that makes sense, but it could definitely make sense if you're increasing the density of air under someone that's falling and, you know, increasing the air resistance under them. That could, that might be it. You're just pulling air under them. Overall, transmutation spells we see, as it suggests uh, from the transmutation school and the wizards part of the handbook, we're getting changes to matter and energy, and we kind of have a couple flavors of this. Some is affecting living things or beings, and then others are basically manipulating matter in ways for non-living things more or less yeah so i think that kind of like wraps it up for transmutation but i did want to go back and hit up a few things with druids that we didn't cover at the beginning and so so there there's a couple other interesting things about druids and we've mainly been talking about the wild shape aspect which is one of the larger parts of a druid there's just a quick point i want to hit on because i think it's interesting so starting at 18th level you get something called timeless body And it's the primal magic that you wield causes you to age more slowly. For every 10 years that pass, your body ages only one year. Which, like, think if you're an elf and you're a druid. You know, like, live forever. Yeah. So I think this this one is interesting and a little bit, like, ties into wild shape because you are kind of manipulating physical form in, in the sense that you're slowing down your biological clock. Which I think, like, just hints at this, like, real mastery of your magical abilities, essentially, which is cool. The other aspect of Druid that we haven't really touched on yet is the more the nature aspect of Druids, essentially. And so um, if you just look at like Player's Handbook Canon, there are uh, two Druid circles that you can pick from, Circle of the Land and Circle of the Moon. Circle of the Moon is more wild shape oriented and that relates more to animals, but Circle of the Land is more nature-based, and you get a lot of like interesting abilities associated with that. Yeah, it definitely seems that Circle of the Land is much more magical-themed as opposed to animal-changing-themed. You can choose from a list of different types or different areas of land. Arctic, coast, desert, forest, grassland, mountain, swamp, underdark. And they all give you additional spells that you're able to use. Additionally... There's a natural recovery, which allows you to get some spell slots back after a short rest. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. I guess I was trying to think of, obviously, mechanically, like, awesome feature, right? 
I envision it like sitting and meditating with nature and drawing some of from like arcane from nature itself and being able to like harness and retain that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. The only thing I can think of with that is solar power, wind power, something (laughs) like that, like taking things from nature and converting them to energy in a practical way. So just skimming through some of the lore of the circle of the land, I definitely think that this subclass is thematically the closest to cleric. You know, it's it's pretty close. Uh, depending on what kind of cleric you're choosing, there's a list of spells you get to choose from, which is you know the same as choosing from a kind of a circle of land. Um, choosing spells, it seems closer to like your cleric domain. Yeah, and. Also closer thematically to like communing with the, you know, the God or power that you venerate. But um, the thing, like, let's look at what separates them, Druid and Cleric. So the easiest thing is like mechanics. So let's look at some of the spells that would be different between Druids and Clerics. So this is just looking at their general spells. It doesn't include like specific Cleric domains or specific circle of the land terrains that you're specializing in just looking at for example like first level spells um we see a lot for cleric detect good and evil like cure wounds sanctuary versus if we look over at druid we see things like animal friendship detect poison and disease good berry entangle yeah entangle so it's and speak with animals, so things that are a lot more, like, natural-oriented. There are some similarities, like, purify food and, and drink. One kind of difference is there there tends to be more of a theme of interacting with nature mm-hmm. um, among the druids. And I think this, this, like, makes sense with if you're getting, drawing your power from either a force of nature itself or a deity that's, like, associated with nature. At like super high levels, um, so we, we we've kind of already talked or like hinted at like two of the druid ninth level spells. So true resurrection and then shape change is kind of like a super souped up version of um, wild shape. Wild shape where you can become something that's a super high challenge rating. Um, but another one is storm of vengeance, and this one I think as like the name suggests, you are creating a storm cloud. Um, you're dealing lightning damage, uh, thunder boom, strong wind, lots is going on. Um, and so I think this at least like hints at um, essentially like a, a good control over nature to be able to do that. Um, it's actually kind of an interesting spell. I've never looked at it in too much detail, but based on what round you're in, different effects happened. Uh, so round two, acid rain, round three, uh, six, lightning uh, bolts shoot out round four you're getting hailstones uh five through ten are gust and freezing rain creating difficult terrain that's conjuration which we'll have to cover sometime that's thinking of the differences between conjuration and transmutation yeah so after this episode justin are you inspired to go play a druid or are you more inclined to go play a transmutation wizard <laughs> I I played a druid recently in a one-shot, um, and honestly, like, Wild Shape has never appealed to me thematically, but I do like a lot of these spells they get access to. Just a lot of interesting utility stuff of 
you know, moving things around, like the storm type spells. Yeah, honestly, if we're looking at like third level spells, like most of these like are directly related to nature in some way. Call lightning, conjure animals, daylight, meld into stone, plant growth, uh, speak with plants, water breathing, water walk, wind wall. There's a few that I skipped, but like that, I think I only skipped three of them or something. Yeah, so what really appeals to me, what would really tempt me about druids is, is not really just any of the animal stuff. That's just not really something I'm interested in, but like all of the like storm or earth based spells that no one else really gets access to are neat to me. What about you? I guess I've had a tiny flavor of both of these. So we played a one shot a while back where I played a transmutation wizard that was a gnome. And the theme of that was like pirate ship. So I kind of had this idea of like, she was the tinker that like repaired the pirate ship. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that was kind of like a fun idea to build upon. Um, I guess I had mainly thought of transmutation from it with that particular character from the perspective of changing non-living forms yeah um and i think i would probably if i did become a transmutation wizard like want to hold more to one of those two themes either uh transmutation to humanoids versus like transmutation to non-living things druid on the other hand i i think i'm a little bit opposite of you i, I like the idea of becoming an animal i i think that's fun um i think maybe like a druid rogue multi-class would be fun where you kind of like use your ability to turn into animals to like pickpocket people or like go eavesdrop on conversations i think that would probably be like maybe the route i would go if i was playing a druid i think that would be just a really fun combination basically that sounds like a dm's nightmare yeah (laughs) that's always my perspective on things is having doing a lot of dming i always see something that's like oh that sounds like a nightmare to dm just breaks everything and i think that's gonna wrap up our thoughts about druids and transmutation Um, One thing we do have this week is our first comment from the community. So this comes in from Grumpy Monkey. I was listening to the Halloween special, and I might have some idea as to why vampires don't have shadows. I was thinking maybe vampires burn in light because large amounts of light shreds through them and rips them apart, while small amounts just pass through them. If that's what happens, then they wouldn't have shadows because the light wouldn't be blocked by their body. It would just pass through them, and they wouldn't have a reflection for the same reason. That's an interesting postulation. I guess my first reaction, I I like it. I think my first reaction would be then, though, that it would also make them difficult to see normally. True, but like most vampires are depicted wearing clothing. So I assume like the same light rules wouldn't apply to their clothing. And so maybe you're just mainly seeing... I guess they're closed, but then you would see that in the reflection, right? Yeah. Or in the shadow? Yeah. I I guess I I don't know a tremendous amount about vampires. I think Monkey said the same thing where I don't know a lot about them in general, not specifically D&D. So, like, I assumed vampires' clothes also didn't have reflections. So, an interesting question would be, like, why could you see them normally but not in the mirror? What's the difference between a mirror and them, you know, or, you know, seeing them as normal? But monkey, I I like I like where your head's at. Thinking about different things, so it's thinking about light passing through things. Um, there's a lot of weird, interesting quantum 
stuff when it comes to why some things are transparent like glass. Like, why does light pass through glass instead of just being blocked by it? And it's very complicated, and you should go look it up because it's also very interesting. I recommend... Uh, there's a YouTube channel called 60 Symbols, and I believe a video I watched was in there about um, transparent things. I definitely uh, would recommend checking that out. So thanks for sending that in, Grumpy Monkey. If you want to send in a comment or a question, or if you have an idea about what we should discuss, send it in to scienceofdd at gmail.com. Yeah, and thanks everyone for listening.